0: Questions. It's a chance for me to dig deep into several of the questions that we received over the last few weeks, giving my lens on various topics around performance. We're going to break today our questions into four main sections. The first, return from injury. The second, a little discussion around metrics, tracking, and wearables, is the very trendy phrase. Thirdly, global training questions. And finally, yoga. Seriously? Yep, yoga. That's going to be the fourth category. So as you listen today, I want to invite you to think about what's missing. What else would you like to ask? In fact, let me ask you to do two things. The first, do you have a question around your own performance journey? And secondly, I invite you to contribute to the podcast. What topics would you like to hear us tackle on the podcast? We've got some great guests joining us over the coming weeks, including Stacey Sims, discussing the female athlete. But I'd love to know what we might say in England, what tickles your fancy? And so if you have questions or thoughts or just want to let us know, head over to purplepatchfitness.com, head to the podcast page, which is right under the education tab. And there's a lovely little form for you to fill out. Go on, give us your worst. Let us know what you want to hear about. Now, speaking of education, I'm going to sneak in a little question here, an outlier question that, goes right into this week's introduction of the show. And it's from Sarah in Kansas. And the reason I'm sneaking in here is it's really indicative of several questions that were received over the last few weeks. So I thought, well, why not sneak it into the show? So here's the question. Dear Matt, I have both your books. I've utilized the plan of the fast track triathlete and I cannot wait each week for the show thank you very much. I I guess my sarcasm and Britishness is yet to turn you off too much, so I appreciate it. But a big part of my joy is self-managing my own program. And I'm not actually looking for a formal plan or coach, but I do find myself wanting more. Do you have any suggestions or perhaps could I purchase a block of individual consultations with you? Well, thank you, Sarah. It's a great question. And the short answer is yes, you can purchase blocks of time with me. But to be honest, I think that there's a better and certainly much more affordable solution for you. It's called our education membership. We don't do a massive promotion of this whatsoever, but as you probably can tell, our primary focus outside of helping athletes thrive is education. And a part of that is content. And it's for all our athletes, but, but beyond as well, we want to hopefully be a positive influence in the endurance and performance world. So we actually have a very affordable $25 monthly subscription that opens up all of the Purple Patch Education resources to you. So that includes things like a library of education and resource across many aspects of performance. We have multiple weekly opportunities where you can actually join us live on video calls, myself and the other coaches. We call it office hours, and you can ask any question that you'd like in a small group setting. We have a weekly educational bulletin that is written by me, myself, and I, and it's only for Purple Patch athletes. And then twice monthly, we do actually deep dive private meetings with Matt, where we have video sessions that go deep, deep, deep on a salient topic around performance. And then we have Q&A following. So I think it's a really nice way to bridge for people that are on their own journey or maybe coached, but enjoy the information that we have to come inside the fold, have a relationship and not have a massive money outlay, So we treat our education subscribers just like a Purple Patch athlete. We've got great pride in supporting them on their journey, and I think it's a great option for you. Now, of course, many of those people end up wanting to take the next step and often go up to the squad program or individual coaching where you have individual programming, but I can promise you there's absolutely no pressure, no sales from us whatsoever. So I hope that helps. Now, let's transition to problem solving and education on specific performance questions from you, answered by me. But just before we do that, I do still want to sneak in word of the week. We cannot do missing a chance to have a little sing and dance. All right, hit it, Barry. We like the way he thinks Serious with a way. Let's open the book It's time to take a peek It's the day Word of the week. yes and the word of the week this week is freedom to fail all right three words but i'm not going to go about changing the jingle for the sake of a little poetic license on my behalf freedom to fail these are words that we often express to an athlete prior to an event they are given freedom to fail to fall short to not succeed It all sounds rather defeatist, doesn't it? Well, on the surface, perhaps, but let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's think about what failure is. And John Wooden, for you guys that are not Yankee poodles, John Wooden is a very well-known and I would say legendary basketball coach that lives up there right with the many greats across all sports of coaching. But John Wooden wants to express failure is simply not doing the things that you are in control of that will contribute to your success. And so if you train and you prepare, and then failure is only measured by not doing the things that you're prepared to do. And under this lens, if you do all of those things in your control, by definition, you are giving your best effort and you're expressing every ounce of your trained potential. And if you show up to an event, whatever the event might be, whatever your level will be, if you do everything that you can control with your best effort, by definition, you have succeeded, even, and yes, even if you fall short of your goals. And a key component of this is a winner knows that failure is always going to be a potential outcome because that's that thing called sport. Sport. But it doesn't mean that that winner needs to be shackled by that or have performance hampered or diluted to this undeniable fact or potential, that word potential outcome. Instead, be free, be happy. Leave yourself a pathway that allows you to express yourself. Racing, whatever your level, is a privilege. And ultimately, it should be fun. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be without nerves, but it should be fun. And so you have freedom to fail. As long as you bring your best self to the race, give it your best shot, and do all that you can in your power to secure the best outcome. Now, no one can ever ultimately predict what the body will give you. It's a funny thing, this world of physiology. So don't try and guess. Don't try and predict. Instead, ask your body the ultimate question and then get busy demanding that it provides you with an answer. What are you gonna give me today? And that is why you can take flight. You don't need to be fearful. You have freedom to fail. It's your gateway to success. And that is why this week, freedom to fail is your word or words of the week. Now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. (music) Yes, the meat and potatoes, we hear from you, the listeners. My favourite part of this, I've got a sneaky secret that I'm gonna tell you. I really enjoy these episodes. I like hearing from you guys, we collect up the questions and I get to well pontificate a little bit so we get to go a little free a little wild so we've organized these questions into four categories as we talk about it and let's start with returning from injury and the first question that we have is from john jacobs john jacobs lives in kalispell in montana john i was quite randomly there last week actually up in whitefish And I don't want to tell anyone, but it is my favorite state in the US, Montana. I have a special place for it. Kelly, my wife and business partner in Purple Patch, stems from Montana. So we have a a real family bond to it. But our listeners don't want to hear about my love of Montana. They want to hear your question. And so let's get to it. So John asks, I am a runner. Although I do dabble in a little bit of lake swimming up there. It's great. Very occasional pool swimming and a little bit touch of mountain biking. And I'm one of the crazies that gets pulled to marathons and even ultras sometimes. But in my late forties, my limbs seem to have taken a little bit of a beating. I've worked in the coach prior, but I feel like I need an alternate path. Now, I know you might scold me for the approach, but it's always been for me about ramping more and more miles So what, if any, positive effect might I get from my swimming and biking on running? I always try and keep above 70 miles a week to feel like I'm marathon ready. But I have to admit, I've struggled to stay injury free. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, I'm salivating at this one, John. Thank you very much. So let me talk just to you first. Number one, stop being stubborn. Number two, join us in this century of the world of training. And I obviously say that with a smirk on my face, but join us in a world of reduced injuries and improved run performance, it awaits you. And I think actually just from reading through the lines of your question, that you have the chance to excel and actually improve your run performance across all distances with an evolved approach. And that is actually gonna be magnified by what you have done up till now. So it's not all for want. You're going to have a great background of resilience and endurance, and you have that as the platform that you can leap into an evolution. When I heard your story or read your question, he you actually reminded me of a, a couple of case studies that I want to get out of the way first. The first was actually a very well-known triathlete, Chris Lieto, a guy that is a wonderful athlete, probably for me the greatest cyclist to ever have participated in triathlon, But he came to me in 2008, I'm dating myself now, but 2008, and in the course of his career as a professional athlete, every single year, and by now he was already world class, but every year had been hampered with a major injury. And most of that stemmed from poor supporting habits, probably not eating much, not enough recovery, not maybe enough enough sleep, and ultimately too much stress, too much load, particularly in the running area, sound familiar? He just couldn't absorb it. So our big intervention, as we called it at the time, and this is the key component, what an amazing athlete Chris Lielo is at that stage of his career to be willing to actually go down a different route and truly evolve and put the trust in at the time a very young coach. But what we did was we reduced his total weekly training hours, we put a big focus on strength, We anchored more of an emphasis on swimming and cycling, even though cycling was his strength. And we also supported that with a whole bunch more of eating and sleeping. So he went from training a typical 30 to 35 hours weekly down to, in 2009, 22 to 24 hours a week. Now, that's still a lot of training hours, but he was a professional Ironman distance athlete. The interesting thing for me is over that year, And over that season, he ultimately accumulated more training hours than he did at any of his prior year. And of course, the reason for that is he'd cracked the consistency code. He had effective training that was layered consistently and he was never injured. Oh, and guess what? He started to run much, much better off the bike, especially in half Ironman races and all the way out to Ironman. And he even managed to come second in the Hawaii Ironman if you want a second case study, that's a little close to home, and then we can talk about Jordan Oeda. And so we actually did a show with Jordan some months ago. We'll put it in the show notes, but Jordan is New York based, he's in financial services, mid forties, purple patch athlete, and he runs three times a week. Now he has a little bit of a running background, but what he did very similar to what we're suggesting for you is he used the multi-sport approach to help him prepare for his marathons. And he'd done multiple marathons, he'd done Boston multiple times, but we transitioned to only three runs weekly. But we layered on very strong swimming, very hard biking, a lot of strength endurance or low cadence riding all the way in, to something that he had never done before. The Boston Marathon and just the very next week going across country and doing the Big Sur Marathon, a very challenging marathon. So two marathons in two weeks. On three runs a week, are you kidding me? Well, guess what? Not only did he retain health and muscular integrity, but he got faster and faster And did a wonderful Boston performance and backed it up a week later with a magical Big Sur performance. So as he enters his late 40s, he's getting faster and faster. He has equal or more resilience. He has vibrancy. All done, believe it or not, on three runs a week. But a whole lot more riding and swimming. And why is that? John, as we think about this? Well, swimming develops a wonderful set of cardiovascular conditioning, and it's actually much easier to hit a higher range of intensity multiple times a week because it's non-weight-bearing. So we can stress the heart within context of life with minimal impact on multiple days. And so from a cardiovascular standpoint, we get to kind of train harder more frequently in many ways, certainly relative to the pure runner, where you're dealing with the corrosive elements of it being weight-bearing and high impact. Biking, in support of that, is a wonderful tool for developing muscular resilience and muscular endurance, particularly when we add our special source, that strength, endurance, low cadence work. And if we do it in support of, what I like to say, just enough running, and that's enough running to specifically train for the race, and having the positive side of weight-bearing so that you can develop the integrity of the tendons and muscles, you ultimately arrive race-ready. And so what I would do is all of that and add a critical component as you lead into your late 40s, strength and conditioning, which is only going to become more and more important for you. So I would do all of that. I would also encourage you to give away your barometer of success being the accumulation of miles, particularly with the fact that you live in Kalispell. Varied terrain, I'm sure you do lots of running in the trails. And for me, mileage is a pretty useless measure when you're going up and down in the trails. And ultimately, it's not a driver of training success. And so instead, I'd encourage you to lean into multi-sport. Run enough, you don't wanna stop running, but make sure that every run is done with great quality. Swim for fitness, bike for muscular endurance, run for specificity, and ultimately commit to staying fresh and you will fly. No bad footsteps. I hope that helps, John. So parallel, the next question of that, in fact, we have two questions that I'm gonna sort of fold into one, but I think both people deserve their recognition. So I'm gonna read both the questions out and name the person by question, and then we're gonna fold the answer because I think it covers both. But this is actually more around actually returning from an overuse injury. So the first is from Letitia Worth, who's in Southern Brazil. Letitia, thank you very much for listening to the show. I Really, really appreciate it. And your question is Hi, Matt. I'm a runner and ex swimmer right now, healing from a stress reaction. So, that's the preface to a stress fracture for you folks listening at home. And it's on the left foot, the second metatarsal, or the second toe. I attribute it to trying to change my foot strike after plantar fasciitis on my other foot. So, overuse in effectively the arch of the foot. My doctor told me to stop running for three months, and it's already been two. I've been swimming every day between three and four kilometers. I'm completely paying three off since the first two weeks. I also do classic Pilates twice a week. But I am afraid to get injured once again when I go back to running. So can you give me some recommendations of which distance to start with, how to progress, etc.? Also, how long will it take me to be back to where I was three months prior? I've been running for 10 years, run my first marathon without any problems and many halves, and I was running 80 to 90 kilometers a week before this injury. Other than this one and the plantar for shyness, I've never had a serious injury before. And so, Letitia, I'm going to answer your question, but I want to bring in a second question uh, that's really related to this. So I think we can come in and this is from Miriam Phelan. And uh, Mirren, I'm not sure where you're based, but here's your question. I'm coming back from tearing my plantar fasciitis and jamming my ankle on a bad fall while rock climbing. Leading up to this injury, I was up in my running mileage for a marathon in the off-season from triathlon. I'm beginning to run again, and swimming and biking have come back relatively easy, but I'm really worried that when to rest my foot or when to push through trying to keep up regular running training. Do you have any suggestions on how to safely reintroduce the running routine? So it's obviously a great question, Miriam, and that's the back half of Letitia's. So let's answer the start of Letitia first, and then we'll drop to the uh, return to running protocols, as we might call it. So Letitia, uh, thank you, and very common. uh, I would say in your part of the recovery, where you're now pain-free, You've done a good job of resting so far, but you've still got a month or so to go before you're effectively allowed to run again. And so I would say first, and I think it's important to recognize this, that you are absolutely in the hardest part of recovery. And that's the phase where the symptoms are gone, but the ultimate truth is you are not healed. And I do that bold capital underline, you're not healed. And so It's natural for every athlete's patience to start to run thin as they're desperate to have the return. But this is the primary part of the recovery process where athletes re-hurt themselves. I would say the next four to six weeks for you are critical. Most athletes mess it up. They don't do it right. And so the first thing I'll say to you is stop. Don't run yet. This is absolutely critical. Do not run yet. The doctor is absolutely right. The pain might be gone, but the bone isn't ready. So instead, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to actually reinvent yourself. It's a great chance to actually check or evolve some of your habits, because the truth is that it's seldom that breaks occur without some element of nutritional fueling contribution. It's also a great chance to revisit your strength and conditioning program and a little bit of an acknowledgement that the truth is that whatever your program was in training and supporting habits there's still a simple fact that your bone broke due to overstress and on the other foot you had plantar fasciitis due to overstress and so you need, and I think it's important to acknowledge this, a more pragmatic solution to your training globally. And it's a wonderful chance to do a little bit of soul searching and a little bit of solutions-based thinking. And it's not a failure, it's not weakness, but how can I avoid this? Am I really doing everything that I can do to stay healthy and keep progressing, especially as now you've introduced training for a marathon? For both of you guys that ask the questions, go back up and listen to John's question. Perhaps a little bit of multi-sport in support of your marathon training might be a wonderful thing. So part two, and this is where we cover off on both of you guys, the running protocol. And so my recommendation would be to start with, and there's no magic formula here, but I would start with something very simple. And it might be five by two minutes with two minutes walk in between or even five by one minute for people that are coming from a long layoff. But let's go with five by two minutes. Between each of them, a two minute walk. Comfortable shoes, soft surfaces possible, no more. So you're not going out for a 30 minute run or a 15 minute run or a 60 minute run. You're doing five intervals of two minutes with two minutes of walk in between. It's not very much. You then want to progress based on this litmus. In any place that you're at in the program, if you have a little pain during, then it isn't ready for the dose of work. So you then want to progress based on the following outline. If you execute a run in this example, five by two minutes. If there's pain during and following, your system or your body just simply isn't ready for that dose. So you want to retreat back. And if it's the first run, that means you've still got to rest. But As you progress, if there's pain during and following, and then it's not ready for the work that you gave it, pull back a little bit. If there's no pain during the run, but you've got a little bit of ache afterwards, that's probably okay to maintain the dose. And if you're pain-free during the run and all the way through the following 24 hours, you're okay to ramp the dose. That's the litmus that you wanna use as you go through. And the truth is that the time back to full running training takes as long as it takes under that guideline. But typically the progression might be five by two, then six by two, then six by three, then eight by three, then eight by four, then five by six, until finally you're progressing to doing a 20 minute piece, a 15 minute piece and a 10 minute piece, always with a minute or two of walk in between. And then you get to do solid steady state, 40 minutes of running, 45 minutes of running, progressing to 50, 55, 60. And once you're up to 60 minutes of running, then you can start to add intensity. A couple of days a week that you do building efforts and stronger. Once you can do that, you're free. Typically that whole process I talked about is going to take about 45 days. So from first run until you're free, you should expect 45 days. Might be a little quicker if you're lucky. Might take a little longer if we overdo it or you're a little bit overambitious. And that's really key. It's guaranteed to be longer if you're not patient. Once you go through that, then the return to running progression is complete. And you should be able to, with evolved habits and be much smarter, go back to the rest of your running and to temper your expectations or provide an outline of your expectations. After that, give or take 45 day, I would expect that you can do full training and within another 45 days, you will be back at or more likely above the level that you've ever been because of the false rest. And so while that feels like a long way from today, a little bit more rest, 45 days of smart progression, and within 45 days after that, you're gonna be better than you've ever been before. And so be patient and be smart. I hope that helps for questions. That covers off on the return to running and injury component. So let's move on to section two, gang. This is all about metrics tracking and wearables. So the first question under this section, Greg Dreyfus, Greg's from San Diego. Thanks so much. And Greg, you've got a great one about wearing watches and metrics in the swimming pool. So my name's Greg, I'm from San Diego. And given your opinion on metrics and wearing a watch in the pool, I'm not a big fan of people wearing a watch in the pool. I'm curious to your stance on 24/7 wearable fitness trackers. I recently stopped wearing mine all day because I felt shackled by the metrics. Using one of my sayings, that's fantastic. Thank you, Greg, (laughs) appreciate it. For example, if I got a short night's sleep, it wouldn't, wouldn't matter how I felt, it would just make me feel terrible for the day. So what would matter is how many hours of sleep it says I got rather than actually how I felt. Do you recommend wearing a fitness tracker? Where's the value? And if you do recommend it, what tips do you have for avoiding the shackling? Well, it's a great question because there's ever increasing prominence of wearables and the information can be really powerful. But I think it's important when we go through this is that the information and the wearables will never be a replacement for the inner animal. And so we should first acknowledge that no matter how good AI gets, there still has to be a human behind it. No matter how good the information and data that we capture, the most powerful computer that we have is right between our ears. And so the way that I see it is that data provides metrics It provides objective information. But the key question of that is not just to be shackled by it, but what are we actually gonna do with it? What action or decision will it help us make? And in this context, the information is wonderful, but we should realize that it's not the burden of the data to provide the answer. The data is there to help inform us to enable us to make a smart decision. And that's the lens that we should look through. Even if our wildest dreams with wonderful inputs provides great recommendations based on artificial intelligence, still ultimately the human being is in control. And so with that context, I actually think wearables can be really, really helpful. But I always like to combine the subjective with the objective. A great example of this is for our training platform, we use a company's platform called Today's Plan, an Australian company. And the question I sometimes get is why? Why not use one of the more well-known competitors? And there's many reasons for it and they're wonderful partners of ours. But the one thing I do like above all else is the layering of the subjective wellness reporting that's combined over the objective. When you combine the two, well, then... You have power. So remember, physiology is a dirty science. It's not bridge building. And so, yes, absolutely lean into the data, but I'd really encourage you to remember the context that we're looking the data in. Now we go to a question that's very different, and I'm going to put this under metrics and tracking because it really pulls in the subjective component of stress. And it's a good one boulder colorado lots of our pro athletes are based in boulder this is from jordan austin and uh, it's all about factoring in yard work and other activities in training so here's jordan's question i really appreciate the question jordan thank you it says i'm curious on how to modify my training when i have yard work or other chores in parentheses and when you hear the question later chores is quite a minimal name for what you're doing Jordan but chores around the house I live on a couple of acres north of Boulder Colorado and it's not uncommon for me to spend hours mowing grass gardening pruning trees and the intensity can actually be quite taxing we recently installed two telephone poles this weekend so that we can get a zip line going sounds like a fun house it sounds like the party house but also can include some mundane like weeding Considering that weekends are where the bulk of the long distance training is scheduled, how shall I modify my training without sacrificing the intent of the weekend sessions? Well, it's all about, the answer here, Jordan, is all about the big bucket of stress. And it's a great question because while not many listeners are installing telephone poles, they certainly can glean a lot of help and information from the lens that we're gonna talk about here. When we're training, What we're really doing is we're playing a game of specific stress management. What I mean by that is that we as coaches or athletes apply a specific stress training, and we want to apply as much of that as possible while achieving positive adaptations. And the body is incredibly smart, but with stress, it's actually not that smart. It doesn't do a good job of differentiating vastly different stresses, both emotional and physical stresses. It doesn't differentiate them well. It's all just stress. So whether we're talking about bike riding or running or emotional stress or time zones or telephone poles or poor sleep or gluttony, starvation, illness, all of those stresses they accumulate, and the body has a tough time differentiating them. So. The easy ones of those that I talked about is training and things like manual labor, but make no mistake, the other stressors are massive. So you have an argument with your spouse or a night of terrible sleep or have to cross time zones with travel. It limits your ability to absorb and adapt. And so pragmatism is absolutely key. So in situations like this, It is the reality of life that a couple of things are key. The first is you want to adopt what I call a dynamic mindset. So be flexible with when you go hard. You have to listen to the body. And if you have a super rigid plan with a dogmatic mindset, I promise you that you're gonna have a whole bunch of really tough, not very effective sessions. And you're gonna carry that into races where you'll be fit and fatigued. So ultimately you've gotta be a little bit flexible because you are coping with a big additional stressor in your life. I think it's also really important to execute what we call the Sunday special. A little bit of planning is important to say, hang on, in my week of training, I don't want it to be just like mushy vegetable soup that's all mixed together. Instead, I want to look at the sessions that are the performance needle driving sessions. And I want to try and equip myself as much as I can to be in the best place to execute them as well as I can. And then the supporting sessions, if they're a little diluted because you're lifting up telephone poles, so be it. They're there for recovery, general endurance, or priming. And so you can easily, without guilt, scale or even sometimes eliminate them. A third thing I'd say is if you get to work out in the morning, it's certainly preferred. So get up, get cracking, do the workout, then put your poles in the ground. That's always gonna be more effective than the external stressor happening before and then trying to lift yourself for the big workout. And ultimately, the final thing I'll say is realize that that to be successful, your training recipe might involve doing less total hours because of this major physical stress and you should be okay with it. Just ensure that those hours you're doing are as effective as possible. So that's one of these that you can't look over the garden fence and think about what Johnny, your neighbor, is doing. You just have to be smart and pragmatic. And if you say to me, but no, I'm desperate to win the world championships. Well, guess what? Within context of you building zip lines, it's not a reasonable goal. And so what we're looking to do is to maximize your performance within context of your life. And that's where the word balance, massively overused, comes into play a little bit. Oh, and one more thing, eat like a lumberjack because fueling yourself through the additional physical labor stuff that you're doing is going to be absolutely critical. And the fact that you live in Boulder, 6,000 feet or so, You better be very, very good at hydration as well. I hope that helps. We are halfway on the questions, guys, and we transition into training questions. So we're talking about general training here. This is when we go a little bit broader, but I wanted to open up the door of opportunity for people to actually ask some questions around training. And this question is from Cecilia Santos from Argentina. Thank you so much, Cecilia, for reaching out. This is about outdoor and indoor. Is it bad to train indoors? So Cecilia's question, huge fan of the Purple Patch podcast. Thank you very much, Cecilia. I'm a time-staffed amateur triathlete from Argentina. Nothing new. Head nurse of a big hospital working 8.30 to 5.30, Monday to Friday, four hours every other Saturday. Married, mother of two beautiful boys and a newly acquired passion for triathlons. Welcome to the sport. Fantastic. Never lose sight of what you're looking to accomplish, Cecilia. Super stuff. But She's competing in her first sprint race in March and looking forward to finishing my first Olympic triathlon in September. But the problem is that we're beginning in winter here in South America, which means almost no daylight to train around my work and family schedule. During the summer, I can train outdoors 6 till 7 8 a.m. every morning, but it's impossible to ride or bike outside before 8. Right, that's because of the, the obviously the daylight and the cold temperatures. So I'm thinking about going indoors, treadmills, spinning bike with a structured plan, etc. But my coach is heavily advising against it because he thinks the quality of this kind of thing isn't as good as outside training. But I just can't find a solution otherwise. What's your opinion of training indoors? Well, my, my initial reaction is it's a fact of life. If you live in New York City, if you live in Montreal, if you live in Argentina over the course of the winter months, So many athletes, including world-class athletes, are effectively consigned to training indoors much of the winter months. And so I would argue that this is a case where pragmatism beats utopia. And unfortunately, too many coaches try to force unsustainable programming into people's really complex and busy lives. And that always leads to failure and frustration. And it's a part of frustration of my coaching life. And so, yeah, It's correct. Outdoor riding is preferable, but it's a fact of life due to conditions and your own life that so often it's just not practical. And so I think we have to first acknowledge the limitations of indoor riding. You have no opportunity when you're riding indoors to work on bike handling skills, which is massive for your long-term development. You don't gain an appreciation of terrain management or how to ride in different environments such as wind. You don't develop the skills of utilizing gears, a really key component. And you also aren't forced to have small muscle stabilization when you're sitting on a fixed trainer or a spin bike. And so therefore, you're going to be limited with your posture at the end of the bike ride and then into the run. And so there are limitations. It's not the same. And we have some very, very good professional world-class athletes that spend all of their time riding on the trainer and they will never reach their potential. If they continue to do it period, they will never reach their potential if they don't become a master of their machine, but the indoor trainer is also highly efficient for time. It's obviously safer, a massive component for many athletes, particularly in the winter months, but also with the ever-increasing business of the roads. It's a wonderful tool for intensity and what we like to do a lot of end of range training. So you can really effectively do very, very low cadence, very high cadence. But should you only train inside because of that great tool? No, it's limiting. But it is really good and a practical tool that offers a super solution to retain specificity within a time starved of life. And so absolutely you should do it. But just ensure that if possible, get as close as you can to your outdoor bike position. The best scenario for it is utilizing a smart trainer. And that's a trainer that can control your bike and can give you a smooth ride that you can actually be on your bike. And as much as possible, retain the structure and the progression of your programming. So you don't just wanna go off into the wilderness and do a whole bunch of intensity. You want to still train to the specific phase of your training that you're in. And so that's my lens on it. Is the trainer great? Yeah, it is great. It's a wonderful tool. Does that mean it's the answer to all of your riding? Absolutely not. But I hope that helps. All right, a couple more to go, guys. I'm running out of steam a little bit, so we've got to keep charging along. But Brandon, Elena, I'm not going to let you down. St. Paul, Minnesota, multiple questions is this theme here around training. Oh, you've got a front you have coming, showing up here, asking me multiple questions. You know what? I'm going to follow you through. Here we go. So first thing, due to financial constraints, I've been using my lower end road bike for training and racing. You have great insights on what adjustments are more important than others on a triathlon bike, such as rims and wheels and crank length. But I'm wondering if you have any changes in priority for someone doing a half Ironman 70.3 with a road bike. I haven't done any upgrades, no clip-ons, no wheel upgrades, etc. All I've put on is water bottle holders. Well, simple solution here for you, Brandon. Firstly, most importantly, enjoy your racing. Most 70.3 races out there are specifically designed for time trial bikes. They tend to have a lower amount of turns, less alpine climbs, and so the speed penalty is there if you're going to ride a road bike. There is a penalty. But guess what? You want to know what? So what? Enjoy it. Don't be in a rush and just enjoy riding your bike. It's a wonderful component. If I were going to source good additions, the first would probably be a set of manual clip-ons. They're very affordable that you can put on the bike, that when you are going down into a headwind or you're on the flats, you can get down, get a little bit more aerodynamic. The second thing would probably be race wheels that provide you with a really smooth ride and the biggest aerodynamic advantage. But to be honest, I wouldn't be in a massive rush. Instead, Ride it like a road bike and love the sport. And if you keep loving it, your time will come to upgrade. We used to have a saying when I was racing professionally. If a geezer rolls up in a Range Rover and a $10,000 bike, you can ignore him. But if another guy rolls up in a clapped out banger of a car and a $10,000 bike, you better be afraid. So take your time, enjoy the sport and let it come to you. Part B of your host of questions that i'm going to try and run through pretty quickly the last two years i've been able to do longer workouts on the weekend but with the addition of our second child i generally only have an hour to work out in the morning and then at the weekends i don't have near as much time i have empathy i'm with you my friend And so now I'm getting to the last third of my program going into the race, I do have the opportunity to potentially do a 90-minute commute each way, so therefore adding up to three hours. And I'm wondering whether it's worthwhile to complete that long key bike work, including the plan, or shall I try and do the 90-minute commute each way? Well, use that commute and ride. And what I would just simply do is make that PM ride, the afternoon ride coming home, a little bit more intense. And I would do something like 30, 30, 30 minutes where you're ramping the effort up to very strong. Those double rides are wonderful tools to develop resilience. And it's certainly better than all of the alternatives on your program. So I'd encourage you not to bypass your family time, enjoy it, but make sure that you get that commute in. It's gonna help your soul, it'll help your training And you'll be ready to ride that road bike and rip it the next time that you go and race. And then finally, your last question for me we will keep rolling on you. You're getting a lot of love today. For both swimming and running, I found that cadence can be a huge role in performance during racing. A lot of things I read online about ideal cadence says I should be between 90 and 100, but it's really hard for me to sustain that for long distances, and my legs feel much more capable about 70 to 80 revolutions per minute in a slightly higher gear, but I'm not sure if that's due to my powerlifting background, but is the lower cadence setting me up for a more challenging run? The good news on this, quick and dirty, and it could be a whole podcast to itself, perhaps we'll do it, but the short answer is no, it's not hurting you. 70 to 80 RPM is fine. Now I say that in context of ignoring different grades, tailwinds, downhills, headwinds, and everything else. But flat road, most people tend to fall between about 75 and 85 revolutions per minute as their sweet spot pedaling. And in fact, there are extremely few triathletes in the world, I could count them on one hand, in which they can maximize bike performance and then run well off with a cadence of more than 90 revolutions per minute. So this is not 90 to 100, contrary to common thinking, is not the optimal cadence for most athletes. One final tip, if you've got a tailwind behind you, your cadence should go up, and therefore your power is gonna drop a little bit with the tailwind, it's gonna be harder for you to produce power. If you're going into a headwind, your cadence is going to be a bit lower. You're going to do a bit more muscle tension on the chain. You want to have something to push against. I hope that helps. And the final section for today, yoga. Jessica Naus, Jessica thanks so much. She wants to know what their thoughts are on hot yoga or vinyasa. I was wondering your thought of, of incorporating regular stretching and yoga classes, either vinyasa or hot yoga for an endurance athlete. Do we need it? Should we do it? How often should we do it? Is there any reason not to do it? Love it. Great. Super. It's a great addition if tailored right. But I say that within context. So I think that yoga specific types of yoga are great and we have a relationship with who i think i believe to be the absolute leader in this area erin taylor she owns a company she's a founder of a company called jazz yoga you can look up jazz yoga but we've been working with erin for the last year and i love what she does so much that we're going to be actually integrating jazz yoga into all purple patch programming and actually live in the upcoming purple patch center when we open in the fall but the key is that when we think about yoga, it's less about just going to a random yoga class. It's not about just going to Bikram. Yoga as the un- as the overlying archway of people understanding or comprehending what we mean, needs to align with the needs for athletes. So any old yoga class might actually have diminishing returns, both of what you yield out of the time that you have to commit And it's not actually really addressing the needs. We want a strength component, a coordination component, a core stability component and rejuvenation. And so how often and how much should you do every single session right at the start, right at the end. But It's only a couple of minutes, two to five minutes. And so what we're actually doing and what we're looking to weave into Purple Patch Program is a habit-driven approach, how to actually help prep for your swim or prep for your bike or prep for your run, how to facilitate recovery following, how to actually build a little bit of coordination, strength, and core stability on a micro level Every day and every exercise. And then perhaps we have the addition of one at the very most two deeper rejuvenation sessions that facilitate recovery. So much in the mindset that many people will go and get body work on massage, that's the place of jazz yoga. Now, we're going to have a lot coming on this, and we're actually working to weave jazz yoga deeply into every Purple Patch Athlete's experience, but in order for it to be effective, we've got to nail it in the fact that it has to fit into life, it has to be simple, has to be repeatable, therefore it's habit-driven And it mustn't be something that's just dumped on top of life and training. So what does that mean? Well, what it really means is that you might see me in coming weeks doing a human pretzel. Yep, I'm committed to it. Now, all I've got to do, thinking about it, is choose my athlete for it. Got any ideas? Come on, you perverts. Tell me, how much would you give for some Dixon human pretzel magic? in a little bit of a magic outfit. Let me know. Should I go sailor boy? I, how am I going to go about this? I think I should stop here, shouldn't I? All right troops, four sections, multiple questions, a little word of the week. I hope you enjoyed and I hope the questions were fruitful. Next week we're back to a regular show, but once again, If you'd like to ask questions, head to Purple Patch Fitness, go to the podcast page that's right under the Education tab, fill out the form, and we'll try and integrate and answer you directly. Oh, and one more thing just before I go. If you do enjoy the show, and if you appreciate that we try and make this ad-free, please lend your support. I promise you, it really, really helps us by spreading the message. If you do and you feel comfortable sharing the episodes with friends and associates that you might benefit, please do so. Be proud. Even shout loud on that horrible thing called social media. Tell people about the shows and the episodes. And ultimately, the big thing, that two-minute review that you lead, hopefully a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I humbly thank you. So come on, Purple Patch Army, let's build this thing together. We'll chat next week, but hopefully you enjoyed questions today. We'll see you again soon. Take care.